Welcome to Across the Pond, a Christian commentary on the way of Jesus in the world today with the co-founders of Red Letter Christians, Dr. Tony Campolo and Shane Claiborne. Red Letter Christians gets its name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red, and we are aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. Some episodes of this podcast have been adapted from our radio show, Across the Pond, which airs on Sunday afternoons in the UK on Premier Radio. Thank you for listening. Let's jump into this week's episode with Shane Claiborne. Hey everybody, welcome to Across the Pond. This is Shane Claiborne, I'm your host, and uh, we call it Across the Pond because I'm over here in the United States recording, but we're talking about things that matter in the world, how our faith connects to the world that we live in, and I get to use this show as a uh, good opportunity to hang out with friends and to make new ones, to get some people that are wiser than me and hear uh, from them. And today, <laughs> I'm I'm so excited. We I've been wanting to do have this conversation for about a year. And uh, my guest is Dr. Jim Wilder, who check this out is a neurotheologian. I bet you didn't even know uh, there was such thing as a neurotheologian, but he's a chief neurotheologian neuro for Life Model Works. He's written a book, uh, Renovated, with Dallas Willard. He's written a bunch of other stuff. Um, I heard him uh, at a conference talking about how the brain works in response to trauma and suffering, and that's one of the things we're going to talk about. But first, uh, Dr. Jim, great to see you. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. It's really great to be with you, Shane, and welcome to your audience. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit. I mean, you got to assume that we we don't know anything about neuroscience. So give us a little 101 on what you do and, and how your study of the brain connects with theology, because neurotheology is probably something a lot of us have never said before. Well, you know, that's true. And uh, the uh, two studies when I took them were completely separated. So on the one side, I'm studying the brain and how it works and all the different functions. On the other side, I'm studying theology and seminary. And they've got this idea of the, you know, how the human being is. Um, but ultimately the thing that remained a mystery to me was, uh, when, uh, God created human beings, he knew that at one point he would have to come and operate one of those brains. Mm. And when Jesus got a human brain, which uh, if we believe in the incarnation, he did. And if we believe in the resurrection, he still has, he's actually made that machine run right. So there must be, you know, by design principles, some things that it was designed to do and it would do well if it was in harmony with God. So I've been looking for that intersection. What are the things that are key to how the brain operates? And they're also key to how God says we should live. And the idea is they should line up. So that's what I spend my days looking for. Wow. And when I heard you talking about the uh, uh, how the brain works, it, it just, I mean, it, it wasn't a presentation that I had heard many, you know, sometimes you hear these keynote speakers and stuff and you're like, yeah, you know, even, even subjects that are beautiful, like grace and redemption. But then you talked about the brain and I wanted you, you know, just to give a little recap of that. But first for, 
you know, I, I think I grew up thinking about the brain like most of our organs. It sort of does its thing. And um, uh, but but the brain's much more dynamic than that. It's kind of um, responding, reacting to life experiences. And so give us a little bit more brain neuroscience 101 on how brains work and develop. Well, here's the fun, two fun parts <laughs> uh, to it. One is when you're first born, your brain comes pretty badly organized. I mean, it's pretty much a, a mess of uh, possibilities. It's sort of, you might think of it like a fruit tree or something in the springtime when it's got all those flowers on, uh, any one of which could become a fruit or an apple, but not all of them do. And the ones that get pollinated are the ones that grow and your brain kind of comes out that way too. It's the things that your brain gets stimulated, gets used are the ones it keeps. And then when you're about four years old, it goes in and trims out all the ones that didn't grow. And that's why if you try to learn a language after you're four years old, you'll probably have an accent mm -hmm. uh, because the parts of your brain you would have used for that language are gone. So we have this, you know, this potential, but it basically learns how to be human by imitating other humans. So whatever they use, whatever they put into the relationship, is what it develops and basically uh, you know it's designed to be relational when it's running well it's having relationships with other people and when it's not running well something is going wrong in our relationships they're just so tied together and then look at theology and you realize hmm god seems to be pretty relational too and when mm -hmm. the relationship with him is going well um, things grow and prosper and work right. And uh, when we're not in good relationship with him, we're not being the people we were meant to be. Mm -hmm. The other part of the brain is that a good part of it isn't there when you're born and it develops by interactions with people we're glad to be with. And for the brain, that means joy. I'm glad to be with you, but I'm glad to be with you. By the time we get through with this conversation, you and I will know each other better some part of my brain will be able to do a Shane impression, you know, and say, well, this is what he would think. And this is how he would react, or at least on the limited range of what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I've got so many thoughts going on. Like, I don't know how much you, you felt familiar are with Rene Girard, but the, you know, the, yep. the mimetic theory, right. That one, the kid wants the red toy. And so then all the kids want the red toy. We imitate what each other does, but it seems like some of that, theology there's a spiritual side to it but there's also a kind of scientific brain side to it right yeah we're basically actually as far as our identity is concerned in our brain uh, our brain is unable to perceive it directly mm. we only know who we are by virtue of how we're seen by others mm. and so there's this definite uh, imitation of what we see around us and even that's how we acquire a sense of who we are. If everyone sees us as pretty useless, uh, that's how we begin to see ourselves. Now, the thing is, if, it, if anyone gets it wrong, it will distress us the rest of, the li of our life, but we'll still mm. believe it. Mm. Mm. My goodness. And, uh, you know, I even think of um, some of the things we do um, you know, even when Paul's writing, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. And the way that we're 
the role that our brain plays in all that. And, um, and one, one of the things that you, I mean, even I'm looking at the violence in the world, you know, we're trying to follow Jesus, the Prince of Peace, but we often imitate violence, even as we're trying to heal the world of violence, right? We end up becoming the beast as we battle the beast sometimes. So some of that, you know, I, I read one study, I wrote about this in a book that criminologists say that uh, when you're faced with a, a kind of a crisis of uh, maybe being attacked or something that we have two responses, fight or flight, we would often think of it, right? You're either going to fight them back or you're going to run away. But when you find the third way, you know, this, this other way, it throws even the mind of the attacker off. And there's a whole book about scenario, real scenarios where people did something other than fight or flight and the, the brain of the attacker wasn't really ready to process that. So it seems like there's a lot in there, right? To unpack. Yes, yes it is. In fact, the book that I currently have in process is Escaping Enemy Mode, How Our Brains Unite and Separate Us and what are those reactions that we have? And that third way is actually what my people would do under this circumstance. Mm. So if we're connected with the people who, let's say, love their enemies, when our enemies attack, our response is, well, yeah, you want to attack, but what my people do is this. And so this uh, you know, brain very much, especially after age 14, is very devoted to trying to learn what is it that my people would do under these circumstances. And you mentioned trauma earlier. Trauma is something I can't share with my people and I don't know what they would do with it. Yeah, I, so I want you to say more about that because what I remember you saying is that, there, I mean, there's actually a physicality of it. You had a model of the brain or something that you had brought with you and you, you said, you can tell by looking at the brain where those traumatic experiences are. And, I, and the way I remember you saying it was that you can have the exact same experience, but the difference between suffering and trauma is feeling alone in the, those moments. If you feel like even the exact same terrible experience you have to go through, if you feel loved and cared for and community as you're going through it, your brain actually looks different than if you have that same experience uh, isolated or alone. Is that right? Did I, get, did I, get, did I pass the test, you're, Jim? <laughs> you're right on, yes. The difference between that and me is I can name the parts and you just know what they do. So No, say more though. <laughs> I mean, I, I just basically rehashed yeah. your talk. But... No, that's oh. good. But the brain comes in, uh, the information comes in from the brain stem down the back, hits the thalamus, and the question is, uh, is this personal to me? Can I share this and be connected with, with some other people? And so if it's personal, it passes it on to the amygdala, which is a little higher up. And that says, is this going to be good, bad, or scary? And that's where the fight or flight comes, right? Mm. So it says, well, this is bad, or it's scary, or it's, uh, you know, it's a good thing. Um, and from there, it goes to the cingulate cortex, which says, Okay, now what will other people do if I tell them this, what I'm feeling? Will they share this feeling or are they going to freak on me? And mm -hmm. at that point, you're about to make the, the trauma decision uh, based on how their people will respond. But there's a second factor, which is um, sort of like going to the gym. How much weight can you lift is something we develop. Yeah. So with other people, the question is, how much 
emotion have we lifted between the two of us? So if I get mm -hmm. a little upset and you go like, I'm, I'm done with this, I'm out of here, you know, this is not, you know, which is actually what happens in most churches, you know, you get a little upset, then you're out of church that, you know, the people stop relating to you. What it means is that if I get at all, this is at all upsetting to me, I can't tell anybody now I'm alone. Or maybe I haven't had enough practice and my brain locks up on me when I try to pick up something as intense as this. Either one uh, is related to how well people, you know, whether there's rejoice when you rejoice and weep when you weep. How well have people been doing that? Now my brain is beginning to make a prediction. Oh, well, when I weep, people always weep with me. Or when I weep, I'm always alone. And it goes mm. like, well, if you're always alone, forget this. And so now it'll just be up to you and how much you can handle it, which freaks your brain out. Like, how am I supposed to handle this by myself, right? Yeah. So that's trauma right there. It's like, I can't tell anybody. I can't, you know, no one will help me if they found out. Or, you know, they won't like me or they'll think, you know, whatever it is that shuts it down. So this practice with each other is something the brain only wants to do with joyful things. Mm. So it's interesting. If you and I practice joy together, I build up my the same nervous system I'm going to need if a, something bad comes along. Mm. And I said, well, you know, we've, we've had some pretty intense laughs together. Maybe we can ta handle an intense cry together. Mm. Uh, and so there's, again, this simple principle, will you join me? Will you share it with me? And, um, you know, also from a spiritual perspective, will God join me with it? Will he share it with me? Will he be part of this? Then will God's people. And the more resources we bring to it, the harder that brain becomes to traumatize. And once we say, okay, now we've shared it, what are we going to do now? Wow. What do I, you know, what do I do when someone comes at me with a knife? Or what do I do when somebody calls me a bad name or something like that? You know, how do we handle it? And if my people smile and go like, ah, yeah, we handle that together. We're used to it. This is what we do. And somebody does that, you know, we immediately look to God and we go like, okay, how are we going to bless this person? You know? Mm. And if mm. that's what we do, my brain goes, oh yeah. Now how am I going to bless this person? Well, I think I'm going to need some help from God because right now I'm clueless, <laughs> but, yeah. if not, I'll, but if not, we'll figure it out on Tuesday's prayer meeting. You know, that's what yeah. we do together. That's the, how the brain wow. wants to create an identity with a third way. Yeah. I mean, as you're, you're sharing all that, I, I start to think of um, the communities that I've lived among and been with. Many of them have been, they've carried some heavy burdens, uh, mm -hmm. like some of my neighbors in North Philadelphia. And, and it's created this sort of resilience, right? I can remember we had a huge fire that burnt down half our neighborhood. And um, after that, the neighborhood just came together and we rebuilt it. But um, I remember at one point during the one of the stock market plunges, I, I heard a neighbor talking. I said, well, what do you think? And, he, and he, he goes, oh, no matter what happens on Wall Street, God is still good. And he said, and my people have been in a recession for a few hundred years. Uh, you know, and, and, and so there's this sense that like we're going to make it through. And I also wonder if the flip side of that is that communities that haven't lifted a lot together, people that have, you know, had pretty comfortable lives, there's sort of a certain fragility that comes from that too, right? To where, you know, when you have a mass mandate, all of a sudden this is absolutely devastating to my freedom and individual rights. Like, um, 
you know, that, that, that it seems like what pe some people name as white fragility or something comes from that space of bent, you know, having so much power and so-called privilege that uh, we haven't developed those muscles of, of a real persecution or a real injustice happening to us. So we kind of think, you know, everything's a persecution. Well, the, the, the group identity that's most often formed, if you're fairly comfortable, is one in which we keep each other in our comfort zone. I don't mm. bring up anything that's going to upset you. We all keep each other comfortable. We all make each other look good. Uh, you know, we think if we look good, God's got to look good and stuff like that, you know. Um, but I remember when I lived in northern Minnesota, every time we'd have a blizzard for the next uh year or two neighbors were much friendlier with each other because they had helped each other pull their cars out yeah. and stuff like that when i was in southern california every time we have a bad earthquake the neighbors all came out and they'd help each other and it would run for like you know a year or two and then you know everyone's back to not talking to each other but these kind of even external disasters when people really need help from other people um are very uh conducive to forming yeah. better relationships with each other. I came to Colorado where I live now and I'm driving along and I saw a car by the edge of the road. Everyone pulled over to see if they were okay. I thought, why do they do that? You know? And then I find out out in these mountain roads, you don't have cell phone coverage. So in California, you'd never pull over because you figure, well, they'll call AAA or whatever on their cell phone. But in the mountains, Again, the need for each other starts to break some of these um, isolations we get into. And yeah. so suffering together helps us suffer well uh, and actually makes us more generous with each other, more compassionate. So, so powerful. And, you know, I, I often tell people that, you know, community is about surrounding ourselves with people who look like the kind of person we want to be. And, you know, you rub off on each other. But what I'm hearing you say is it actually shapes your brain, too, that if you hang out with generous people, you become more generous. If you hang out with courageous people, they make you courageous. And maybe that's what happens in some of the big social movements that we see in history, too, is that people are that courage is contagious. And so is fear. Right. Like when people begin to get fearful or cynical or narcissistic, like it's also a kind of contagion to our brains, isn't it? Well, there, there's one little caveat to that, you might say, and that is that in order to influence our identity so that it changes who we are and how we respond, because um, we can hide in the crowd and, and they won't, what they do won't rub off on us at all. The people that we're relating to, our brain has to identify as one of my people. Mm. And here becomes exactly the problem that we have. And that is, if you have somebody who's got a good idea, but in your mind, they're not one of my people, then we're not going to actually learn anything from them. It will not get past the lock. And to be my people, we have to have some kind of attachment with people. Wow. And this yeah. is exactly what I see is missing, uh, at least in the Western church. And that is, you know, we're about having the same shared beliefs but the shared beliefs run on the left side of your brain predominantly, and they don't make anybody my people. They just right. mean you're the people I don't argue with. Um, 
But wow. now you get a you you know, do my people wear masks? Do my people get vaccinated? Do my uh, people feel comfortable when people with hoodies come along? Do people, you know, uh, do I feel like the a person from a different uh, racial or ethnic group, are they my people or are they not? Mm. And even if they provide us with a good example, but our brain says that's not my people, uh, it won't rub off on our character. Yeah. We'll just go, those people do that. And this is, I think, what, you know, when I was actually at the conference you were talking about, I was saying, you know, we need to find ways to broaden who my people are. Uh, yeah. So that includes Christians. Because Christians yeah. all around the world seem more like their, whatever their uh, social group is, than like Christians elsewhere. And yeah. And that, that requires some attachment, some love. I think attachment, that's the point in my book. When the Bible talks about love, it's not talking about a particular feeling. It's talking about an attachment. We have a relationship. We're connected. Yeah. We're, we, we are a people. That's, that is what transforms us. And I think that's what the Bible means by love. You should love your enemy. It actually means you should attach to your enemy. You should form a connection that's lasting with that enemy, um, not just, you know, be nice to them or something like that. Yeah. Wow. And in case you guys are just tuning in, um, I'm talking to Dr. Jim Wilder, who's a neurotheologian, and uh, uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. And, I, you know, I think about um, what Jesus is saying, who are my people? You know, who they say your family's here. He said, who, who is my family? He's really expanding and redefining family beyond biology, beyond the kind of uh, homogenous circles that we find. We often, you know, build ourselves around comfortable relationships. Uh, it sure has a lot to offer our world right now with the conflict in Ukraine. If, if Christians decided just not to kill other Christians <laughs> or anyone at all, it would um, really change a lot of things. But I also think about our country that's so polarized, right? And um, a study called More in Common uh, said that it was like around 80% of uh, Democrats thought, and this is an interesting word that they used, uh, Republicans are brainwashed. And it was the exact opposite. You know, almost 80% of Democrats thought uh, Republicans were brainwashed. And then it went on to say that a stunning number of both of those groups thought the, the world would be better off without the other. And then this is the thing that made this, that I, I thought of as you were sharing though, what the big, the big um, interesting find though, is that when a person had a relationship with someone who disagreed with them politically, they were the least likely to think that they were brainwashed or evil. If you just had some kind of reciprocal relationship with someone that that you know thought differently politically or theologically, it made all the difference in the world. It's kind of interesting. Probably not surprising to you at all, right? Uh, no, it uh, those kind of attachments to somebody it becomes the the bridge we're talking about. I I did a lot uh, of um, sort of sharing with uh, the situation in Rwanda where. Uh, what happens is they knew each other, but they lacked compassion. And then when Peter says, um, you know, once you were not a people, but once you had not received compassion, but now you have received compassion, so you become a people. Uh, and the, the lesson I learned from Rwanda is that 
it starts with compassion. We share what is happening to the other person. Wow. And by sharing that, we begin to be a people. We Because uh, we're going to, whatever you are going to feel, I am going to feel. And that's what changes us. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I went to Rwanda as well. And one of the things that they have at some of those memorials uh, from the genocide are, uh, if you had known me, you could not have killed me. And I think it's not just like knowing who you are, but if you had really known me, right? It would right, because they were kill. often neighbors. So right. they knew exactly who the person was, but they didn't share the feelings. Yeah, what and Howard, Howard Thurman, he writes about this in Jesus and the Disinherited, that it's not enough just to be in proximity or uh, the same space. In fact, it can really be detrimental to mm-hmm. have like like you think about you know our history around race black folks and white folks that were sharing space but didn't yep. laugh together didn't cry together didn't ex- you know really have any depth to their mutuality right um, exactly well I, this time flew i just want to ask one last thing i heard someone say that in in our brain it gets rutted as we get older and that's why old folks have a hard time thinking like um maybe it's not just old folks, but you know, that sometimes we get used to doing things. I always drive this way. I always do it this way. And um, sometimes in the church, we're really good at that, right? We've never done it that way before, but there seems to be this sort of youthful imagination that's awakening in, in right now. And I didn't know if you wanted to say anything about that, but uh, as you share, I just feel like you, you probably have a good pulse on that. One of the things about dreaming uh, at night is that it's your brain's attempt to not st- stay in the rut all the time. So as long as we're not scared to try something and we Mm. attach to somebody else, we say, I'll go with you. We're going to be able across our lifetime to grow joy. It's the one part of your brain that will grow at any age, at any stage. And so being glad to be with other people will actually lead us into creativity we wouldn't otherwise experience. So let's go for it. Good heavens. Well, I wish we had another half hour, but y'all, it's been a beautiful conversation on neurotheology with Dr. Jim Wilder. This is Across the Pond. Join us next week. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about Red Letter Christians, please visit redletterchristians.org for resources, upcoming events, and to connect with other people who are passionate about Jesus and justice. You can follow Shane Claiborne and Red Letter Christians on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you'd like to support our work with a one-time gift or by becoming a monthly sustainer of the movement, please visit our website and click on the red donate button. Thank you for tuning in.